We're no longer uh, a science-based society. We are now a belief-based society. Welcome to the show that the fact-checkers warned you about. The one that debunks the mainstream narrative and gives you high-signal, actionable content that helps you navigate the cloud world. It's Bomb Thrower TV with your host, Mark Jekovic. I'm going to do a very quick intro. My name is Mark Jeftovic. This is Bomb Thrower TV, and I am thrilled to welcome to the show today BJ Dichter, the uh, one of the founding three of the Freedom Convoy, the movement that uh, I think changed the world, actually. And uh, we'll get into that today, but um, it really was something to behold. And I have your book, uh, Honking for Freedom, the Trucker Convoy that gave us hope. And that's exactly what it did right there. And, um, you know, what it was about, what it became, how it was framed. I mean, all of that fascinates me. I got involved very tangentially. Okay. um, And we'll get into that. But uh, why don't we start with your background for those who haven't heard it? I know that uh, being a trucker, I think it's part of your, it's your retirement plans, so to speak, in a way. And what were you doing before and how did you become um, a trucker? Um, yeah, I describe it as a side hustle, Yeah, uh, more of something to do, especially during the COVID years where we were locked mm-hmm. in uh, a virtual prison in Canada. <laughs> um, the uh, My background, it's I've done a bunch of things. I started, you know, I went to school for gemology and diamond grading. Mm-hmm. I specialized in diamond grading. Um, I've worked in a, a number of varied careers. I invented a product for motorcycles many years ago and patented it in the United States. Mm-hmm. Ended up working for Harley Davidson. Um, worked as a project manager for a large chain. That's where I really learned how to manage uh, large staffs of people, which normally would have been a huge asset at the Freedom Convoy. And I guess in some ways was, in some ways wasn't. Um and, you know, I, I got into trucking after I uh, I sold my business uh, several years ago. I had a business on uh, Ryerson University campus in Toronto. I saw the shift in culture towards what I describe as uh, extreme postmodernism or neo-progressivism, I like to call it. Saw it before my very eyes. And uh, that's what really caught, convinced me to get away from that business. And I started... Out of curiosity, I always wanted to do a podcast. I have a background in music, you know, played with sequencers when they were first invented in the 80s. <laughs> I, I'm always, I've had a computer since I was three years old, started with a pet emulator. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of a techie guy in that respect. So I started doing podcasts. And um, what, before COVID started, my brother, or my biological brother, uh, came to me and said, you know, let's well, let's buy trucks. And I looked at him. And I said, "What are you crazy? <laughs> what would you buy a truck for?" And he knew I'm, I I used to race my car at the track. I'm into motorcycles. Like he knows I'm a, I'm a car guy. And he said, "No, I used to drive a truck when I um, I was younger, and I always wanted to uh, get a a truck and maybe set up a trucking business for when I retire from policing." And he said, "Why don't you get your license? Because the the regulations are changing. It's cheap now. It doesn't take a lot to get it." And uh, maybe we'll do something when I retire, maybe not, but, you know, just something to do. And I said, sure. And I love road trips. I love driving long distance. So it just became my, you know, on the days that I wasn't doing podcasts or other things, I had a free few days. 
I'd reach out to dispatch and I'd hop in the truck and I'd go to the U.S. often with my brother in Tamden, but not always, uh, to have some personal time and uh, to get away from the craziness in Canada. And your brother's a cop or was? Yeah, the story is this. I was at my um, my business on campus uh, maybe 10 years ago. And I got a call from the police looking for me. And uh, they said, stay where you are. We're going to come see you in about an hour or so. Cop comes in, plain clothes, dressed like you and I right now. And I remember, I can still, it's imprinted in my mind. I can see him talking to one of my employees, Phil, right in front of the door, pulls out his, like, law and order, pulls out his ID. <laughs> and they're pointing to me in the back. And like, uh-oh, <laughs> what'd I do? I didn't do anything wrong. And he sits me down and he says, are you Benjamin Dichter? And I said, yes. He says, sit down. And he says, I might as well just tell you. He said, first, I'll tell you nobody's hurt, injured, hurt, injured, or killed. I said, okay, great. Maybe I'm just very positive. That was the farthest thing from my mind. And he says, yeah, I've done a lot of that in my career. But I might as well just tell you, I'm your brother. Do you know you're adopted? Wow. And that's how, you know, that's why I said biological brother. And it turns out he, at that time, was a detective. And now he's a sergeant coming, getting close to uh, retirement age. Okay, a little bit of a tangent because this subject is our, our daughter is adopted. So I have to know. Oh, um, yeah. I'm curious. Did you know you were adopted before that moment? Oh, uh, yeah. From um, and from the age that I could speak and understand. I remember one of those early memories. I remember my parents calling me into their bedroom. So I remember yeah. the red carpet on the floor. And they said, um, we, you know, mommy and daddy need to tell you something. Uh, do you, you your, do you know what adopted is? And I'm like, no. And they explained what it is. And I said, okay. So it's, you're adopted. And my response was something to the effect of, okay, can I go play now? <laughs> and that was it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, we told our daughter when she was, I think like five years old. And, uh, you know, I remember the moment well. And, and she said something, she asked a question. I can't remember what it was off the top of my head right now. Um, probably just because of the, the, the hecticness of the interview but it was like uh but we explained it to her and she knew it and there was a cartoon on tv in those days called dinosaur train that was yeah. um without ever saying it, it was like this one dinosaur was not like the other dinosaurs but it kind of found its way into their nest and when he hatched yeah. they just took him in um and that's good it was one of the family and it was uh it was like it's kind of like dinosaur train so yeah uh, well, anyway if i if I can put your mind at ease or any the ease uh, of anybody who's adopted children, something that I learned, we were, um, our first conversation, we really kind of connected. And he explains to me, by the way, it's not just the two of us. We're full brothers and sisters, and we have two full sisters. Oh, wow. And we were all given away to different cultures, different backgrounds, whatever. And he gave me the whole extended thing, which is not important here, but he was telling me, we got to talking, he was telling me about a case that he was investigating. I think he was in homicide at the time. And, uh, you know, obviously not divulging too much information, but just general stuff that he's seen recently. And my automatic nonverbal reaction to him was, oy vey. And then he does this. <laughs> and I looked at him like, what's the problem? He says, what did you just say? And he's a de detective. He's Mr. Attention to Detail. Yeah. And I said, I, I don't know what I said. I said, uh, oy vey. And he was, what is that? <laughs> I said, wait, you've, you've never seen The Daily Show? You've never seen a Jackie Mason? Like, it's it's Yiddish. He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because, of course, he grew up 
first in a Mennonite family and then his parents passed away. It was a long story. But um, and then I realized, despite the fact that we are genetically um, identical, we look very similar. We have some sort of similar traits, but he has none of the cultural experiences mm. that I have in my life. And that really reaffirmed to me that my parents who adopted me are my parents because I have all their behaviors. I have a combination mm-hmm. of their worldviews and understandings and ethics and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I've, I'll leave it after this this one. But I've always said our daughter single-handedly settles the nature versus nurture argument because yes. she is an amalgamation of my wife and I to the T, much to our consternation sometimes. But uh, right. <laughs> she's, she's iron willed and will not uh, will not budge on certain things. But anyway, um, okay. let's talk. Uh, one thing I, I that was always frustrating to me when talking about the Freedom Convoy, and we'll get into the whole narrative and spin and media, but let's mm-hmm. state it for the record here. What was the goal of the Freedom Convoy? Oh, it was pretty simple. To end the um, the vaccine mandates mm. and to end the Arrive Can app. And obviously, whenever you get a large group of people together, there's going to be various you know, sub-grievances and whatever. But that was the primary goal of it. And it's not that people were, and this is despite what the mainstream media wanted to smear us and label with, it's not that people were necessarily anti-vax, although there were a lot of people who participated who felt that way. Um, but it was pro-choice, right? Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, if if you want to give me whatever, especially the fact that it, it was new technology experimental, that always scares people. You know, Bitcoin scares people. So imagine putting something in your veins, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think it, it, we we tried to focus on, on what we all agreed on, the, the largest common denominator. And for me, as, as a techie guy, um, I might have been least skeptical about um, the uh, uh, about the mRNA than most people. But um, I was not completely sold and I was not completely against. I was very much of inconclusive i don't know which is which is a space that we often forget in our society now right i Mm -hmm. i I couldn't didn't have enough data to form an opinion but what i did know was government tracking which i discussed in tucker carlson was when i pulled up to the booth and the border agent said i don't need to see your phone you we already detected your phone because of the app and i have all your information here that for me was a concern because, well, is this going to end up in police cruisers and government offices all over the country? Like that's that's what really hit home for me most. Yeah, the mandates were a problem already. Uh, it was the government response to COVID in general, but the data collection part really, uh, really aggravated it for me. Yeah, and I think um, when I I think it was on Robert Breedlove's podcast when I heard your your rent your story about you were pulling up to the booth and like you said they 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 the phone was broadcasting everything so that's that was there was that there was actually the arrive can app was done differently than um, the uh, the exposure app because the exposure app I actually had that on my phone and I was putting out a, a tech newsletter at the time and I still we still put it out actually at Easy DNS my main business and we said you know we feel okay putting this app on your phone because the source code is on GitHub 
right? We, yep. we know what it does. It's up there. Yeah. It's We can have thousands of eyes on it. There's nothing nefarious in here. This is how you do this kind of an intervention during a pandemic to sort of get that public confidence and to allay privacy fears is you publish the source code, you put it up on GitHub. As far as I know, that wasn't the case in ArriveGAN. We had no idea what was in that app. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so um, we'll get to Bitcoin in a sec, but, you know, it was very quickly when the the framing, well, not very quickly, but at, at some point, and, and you go through it in your book, you don't have to like wade into the gory details of, of the Pat Kings and the Canada unity. Uh, but at some point it, there was like the narrative just turned into something else or, or it was always served up to the public as something else that these are white supremacists. These people are looking to overthrow the government of Canada. I mean, I still talk to people to this day and that is their mental model for the freedom convoy. Yeah, because they're suffering from narrative poisoning. And uh, depending on what media they're subjected to, that's really the opinion that they ended up hearing, uh, holding because they've heard one opinion repeated to them over and over and over again, which is my concern with media, that everybody's using the Goebbels tactics now. It's just, uh, you know, whatever narrative and just plug and play. Um, one of the other things, you know, when we started this, when we started this podcast, and you wouldn't know, but um, it really, it didn't start with myself and Chris and with uh, uh, with Tamara. It actually started a group of there was I think eleven truckers in Western Canada. Uh, they started it, and then Tamara somehow got involved, and then she called me, asked me for a favor to help with messaging. Um, but because it was so complex, there was nothing but deception from legacy media. There was deception from alternative media as well on all sides. Hmm. Uh, no one was being straight with what was going on. I was doing my best to try to manage that and to leverage one media over the other to do my best to get the story out while also trying to bait the legacy media to cover it. Because in the beginning, the legacy media wasn't covering it. They were trying to ignore it which is one of the reasons I banned them from our press conferences. And I knew that would set them off. What people don't know is not only did I ban them from our press conferences, but I also sent invites to all my contacts in the legacy media. And then when they responded, I said, oh, sorry, you can't come. <laughs> they went crazy. <laughs> I think marketers call that the takeaway sale. But... That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, what What infuriated me about that, uh, when you look at headlines through throughout the world, there was one guy with a Confederate flag who was hounded out of the crowd by the, yeah. by the convoy. There was one guy with the swastika flag. I would I would pay money to know to have that person revealed and outed because what and because I think and I'm not the only one that that was a plant. Uh, because it was just so convenient that there was a photographer there getting professional quality photos of this person walking through the crowd. And yet those two images were on infinite loop all over the world. They just looped the same image over and over. And then it's so subtle. I mean, Noam Chomsky's original book, Manufacturing Consent, talked about all of this. And it's kind of almost disheartening how he became sort of a COVID authoritarian layer. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, suddenly the headlines say 
Confederate flags and swastikas, plural, like it's plural, yeah. and it's so subtle, right? And so it gets into the it gets into the mind of the masses, and they think that this place was overrun with Hitler Youth and you know Klansmen and 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 people, and it was one guy of eat one swastika, one Confederate flag, and they were hounded out of the out of the area by the participants, and so that. Uh, was infuriating. And the other thing I'll say about this, when I talked, when I tried to engage with people who disagreed with me about what what you were trying to do, what the what the goal, mm-hmm. the stated goal of the convoy was, the discourse would be civil and it would be polite until one thing happened. When I challenged their source of news, when I said, well, you're getting, you know, when I called into question the uh the veracity of the mainstream media they mm-hmm. flipped out like the conversation turned nasty immediately so what i found very odd about this is is yeah. you can oppose people's premises and you can you can attack even their beliefs but if you attack their support structure for how they base their knowledge they they get defensive and they come out swinging uh yeah it's because they you've triggered them into cognitive dissonance and you know one of the people one of the benefits of all of this I've, I've managed to connect with some people that have large platforms people who i admire one of them was uh, i've messaged him back and forth just a couple of times is uh, scott adams mm. and scott adams describes this as the seven signs of cognitive dissonance He's trying to do his best to get people to understand this once you challenge their belief system they do one of the seven, they jump into one of the seven categories, which are change the topic, ad hominem, mind reading, word salad, analogy instead of reason. It's too complicated to explain or the so you're saying straw man, which is what you saw if you remember Jordan Peterson and Kathy Newman's a good example of that. Mm-hmm. And that's what you've done. You've managed to force them into second guessing their belief system because we're no longer uh, a science-based society we are now a belief-based society and we don't challenge our own beliefs that's why i like this i've always grown up listening to people who have different perspectives and opinions that i do i'm not a huge fan of noam chomsky but i've read and at least had exposure to 90 percent of his stuff just so i understand what the other side thinks right and sometimes there's crossover sometimes we agree on stuff and that's how we, I think that's the direction we need to go in a society. Like I have a I have a, uh, a discord now and my discord, we're slowly building it out in, de- in, in a sort of beta testing, if you want, if you will, because it started by some people who are kind of lefty, but they're supportive of freedom. We disagree on stuff, but we want to have a, a place for us all to talk without the vitriol and noise from the political actors who don't want that to happen. So we have a right-wing room, a left-wing room, an I don't know room. So we can, you know, over time just start to hear each other out. That's the way it used to be. And I think we need to go that in that direction in my opinion. And that will solve a lot of it. Well, what's what's very ironic now is that a lot of the dissent um the 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 pillars of dissent like sort of uh disputing mainstream narratives uh framing that sort of thing that all as far as i can remember originated on the left 
like it was a, it was it was like leftist progressive that were sort of the resistors, the free speech champions, that sort of thing. And now there's this it's almost an inversion where now it's like, you know, the left is very establishment. And and I think that that whole left right dichotomy is sort of um, obsolete in the sense that now it's it's more of a tension between centralization and decentralization. I mean, you've probably heard this a million times talking to Bitcoiners. But it's, it, I just distill it down to you either think you have a moral right to tell everybody else or other people what to do and how to think, or you don't. And that's the whole differentiation right now. And like you said, the Freedom Convoy was pro-choice. It was basically, I can't decide for you whether you should get the vaccine or not. I can decide for me that's a big enough job. I mean, it's hard enough to make your own your own decisions and, and gather your own information in the world. How on earth are you expected to do it for other people? But that's what, that's the situation we're in now. And so it's, and that straddles left and right. Yeah, I agree. I think what we're, we're seeing, like if, if we were to live in this you know, 17th or 18th century French revolutionary perspective where there's left and right, um, if that's the case, then I have news for everybody on the left. Uh, you're the right-wing authoritarians who wanted to censor my video games and music in the 90s. That's what you've become. Mm -hmm. You become the very people you profess to be fighting against. And that's why I think I, I, I don't like dichotomies. And I explain this both with uh, Robert and on uh, Michaela Peterson's podcast, that I think we have at least, at least three perspectives on every topic, but probably a much broader spectrum and uh, where we have, like I explained, I like the the goals of, of the left, where they want to help people. I like the systems of the right, where they want to organize things so things make logical sense for us to do that. And I love the, the freedom of libertarianism, that we all get the choice to decide where we want to plot on that graph. And uh, that's going to be my mission moving forward, to try to pull people out of this left-right, lazy, binary view of the world that our media and politicians like, but unfortunately, it's just not accurate. Right. Have you ever read Martin Gurry's Revolt to the Public? No. He came out with this, um, uh, I want to, you know, he talks about, I'm trying to think if it came out before Trump and Brexit or after, but it was sort of like okay. somewhere in the in the 20 teens, he was uh, an ex-CIA analyst, but I mean, he, he he's like, it, it wasn't as glamorous as it sounds, but he talks about basically how our legacy institutions are completely out of touch with, you know, its roots, like the reason they're, they're governing mandates and out of touch with the people. And, and he traces it all the way from the Arab, Arab Spring and, and the color revolutions and that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, and he actually was recently, he 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 doesn't do a lot of public appearances, but he was just on trigonometry. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Oh, yeah. But yeah, he was just yep. on their show a couple of weeks ago. Um, mm -hmm. And it really, uh, he really, and he referenced the Freedom Convoy actually on that interview and stuff. Oh. And it, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's, and it, and it brings in this, this, this atrophy of our institutions, right? Our institutions are industrial aged behemoths that function on a top down, you know, pyramid mm -hmm. structure. And we're in this network world. That's what a lot of my reading covers and, and, and stuff over the years is like, we're in this, 
this network world where everything is um, distributed, not hierarchical. And so um, it sort of corresponds with what we call, you know, the fourth turning. That's another book that's sort of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, that just we're yep, sort of at this, this, this inflection point where the old systems are breaking down. The new systems are coming in to take their place. It's probably as good as place as any to start, start talking about Bitcoin, which entered the scene during the whole trucker convoy. Yeah, and the boy, that was, uh, I got a lot of heat for that. <laughs> um, you and me both. I, I didn't, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't realize until recently, uh, I was in a Twitter space and somebody who is a Bitcoiner, I don't know if I should say who who he was, who he has used as a pseudonym, but he says, he said in his Twitter space that he tried to reach out to Tamara uh, before anybody got to Ottawa to say that I'm a Bitcoiner, I have a bunch of Bitcoiners, we want to raise money for you, uh, you're raising a lot of money, we know it's going to be fr frozen or we believe it's going to be frozen, so it's a decentralized alternative. And her response, according to this Bitcoiner, uh, she was in the truck, apparently with Chris or something, and she said, I don't need video game money. I need real money. Mm. Okay. We've all been there, right? We've all yeah. heard those sorts of things. And it wasn't until we had been in Ottawa for several days that uh, Caribou found me online because they were raising money in Bitcoin. They wanted to figure out how they can help us. And then they saw me on one of the interviews and uh, searched me on Twitter and saw that I had hashtag Bitcoin. So they called me in there or messaged me and said, wait, are you a Bitcoiner? I'm like, yeah, I'm a quiet one. But yeah, I've I've I'm been in a, learning about Bitcoin since six, since 15 into it since I think 16 was when I first bought it. And uh, he's like, oh, OK, can we come meet with you? Like he, we're, we're trying to do this. Which I'm like, sure, sure. Come. So they came the next day. There was, I don't know, 12, 13 of them showed up in their, their parkas and ski suits because it was minus 40 degrees. And they didn't know each other. I didn't know this. Caribou was going around and other Bitcoiners saw his Bitcoin hat. And they said, hey, you're a Bitcoiner. He said, yeah, I'm going to meet with BJ. You want to come with me? He says, oh, yeah, we want to come. So they all And they all kind of formed some sort of. Uh, friendship collaboration and we all know you know there was friction there and people didn't know what to do and they were trying to figure out how to make it work um they came to me i gave them i don't know the blessing but to say yeah we're we're i'm on board i'll deal with the board or the freedom convoy organizers whatever uh you go do the fundraising uh I'll, we'll take care of each other everything will work out i'm glad you're doing this this can be an amazing moment for bitcoin let's stick together and make it happen and um, then later on that day, I went to the board members, or not went to, but, you know, we would communicate through text messaging or they'd come one at a time and coming into my, my room or whatever. But I mentioned to, I can't remember who I mentioned it to first. There was a couple of them in my room. And I said, yeah, get good news. There's a bunch of Bitcoiners <laughs> that are raising money uh, for the convoy. And it was, that's criminal money for drugs and stuff. Like, oh, here we go again. Mm -hmm. And I joke often, I tell people I had to figure out a way to rapid fire orange pill people and uh, was not having success. But slowly over time, uh, some of them, at least, I, I don't want to say they warmed up to the issue, 
but it was like, well, we have bigger issues to deal with, so you do whatever you're doing with Bitcoin. I'm like, okay, well, that that, that was basically it. So how many people became instantly orange-pilled when bank accounts started getting free, frozen? It's amazing. You know, it's just like the narrative poisoning poisoning problem with messaging uh mm-hmm. once you th- once you throw them the counter narrative uh either people will slip into the seven signs of cognitive dissonance at least based on my experience or if it's really serious it really hits them emotionally where it's important like their freedom and their wealth then they switch to okay tell me more right so we got a little bit of that uh, there was so much. I mean, I spent a week on the phone with lawyers trying not to get arrested. There were so many other things going on that it's not even covered in the book. Stuff I haven't talked about yet because there's so many things. But what it did do is it allowed me to do uh, consecutive Twitter spaces towards the end and then after the convoy and leading up to Bitcoin 2022 uh, in Miami that I had people, okay, tell me about Bitcoin. How did it work during the convoy? How do I buy it? Uh, Should I keep it here? You you know, and it just really opened up the doors where people previously, they dismissed it because look, in the Western world, we're spoiled. We don't deal with regular currency collapses. We're we're not in Argentina and Brazil, right? Yeah. But so what is Bitcoin here? It's an investment. Well, once the Freedom Convoy came around, that hyperbolic scenario that we all thought would never happen here, it's always going to happen somewhere else. Well, it happened here. And now it's more than just an investment for a small group of people that's growing uh, daily. That's why in my Discord, we have a Bitcoin chat for people who are new and still learning and don't understand. And, you know, I like the soft pill approach, the soft orange pill approach of let people come to you and they are definitely coming because of uh, the chief marketing officer of Bitcoin, Justin Trudeau. Indeed. I mean, that was a defining moment for Bitcoin. I've been following Bitcoin. I got involved with it in 2013. I was writing Mm -hmm. then that the Cyprus bail-in was what was pushing Bitcoin above $100 for the first time. Like People were realizing, hey, wait a minute, You mean the banks can just reach into your account and they can recapitalize a zombie bank with my savings? And then that language suddenly appeared all over the world. Like it started in Canada. Again, it showed up in, it was the Harper government in those days. It showed up in a budget, um, this plan to rapidly convert certain assets in, in the unlikely event of a systemically important bank. And then it got re-upped into the budget, and then it was formalized under Trudeau. So it's now, that's, bail-ins are baked in in Canada, like just banking. And if you remember, because I remember that was going on, the narrative around bail-ins is, oh, it's just a precaution, but it'll never actually be It'll never actually happen. Just like we're never actually going to freeze your bank accounts, right? Yeah. And the bail-in language is in enshrined in pretty well all the G20 nations now. And in fact, there's even a supranational treaty that covers it. And so at the time I was saying, you know, someday banks are just going to be like this as the financial system teeters on collapse, governments are going to get desperate and they're going to be like seizing bank accounts and stuff. And then it, it, you know, fast forward a bunch of years, I launched my newsletter um, in 2020. 2021 the convoy happened in 221 right in in 21 22 22 
So I launched the newsletter in 21 and everything I was talking about as saying, you know, the governments are going to get desperate and you need Bitcoin. It's not an investment. It's like an outside monetary system. There's going to be two monetary systems in the future, CBDCs, which will be like social credit systems and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And we're going to have this sort of monetary apartheid between the two. And everything I was talking about in that newsletter and the initial report that launched it, I was thinking five and 10 year increments, like five, 10 years out, this sort of thing is going to happen. Yeah. Less than a year later, it started happening, like especially yeah. with the, the the Trudeau seizing the bank accounts that was crossing the Rubicon. There is no going back. You are right. I mean, nothing did more to market Bitcoin than that. I tell this story a lot. Sorry if you're listening, you've heard this one. I got a neighbor nearby. Right after that happens, he rolls by in his Tesla, rolls down his window and he yells, Mark, I got to get me some Bitcoin, right? And so hmm. and it wasn't about making money on it. It was about preserving preserving um, his funds. And so, I mean, another person I know, um, they had a relative lose an acting position because she contributed to the freedom convoy and she got docs when that spreadsheet came out and yeah, you're gone. So, I mean, that was such an act of um, violence, really like just, it was such a, such a, uh, um, a violation of human rights to seize bank accounts and to dox the people who were making perfectly legal donations to that. What did you think, when the um the hearing what was it called the uh the review the emergency act had to be reviewed oh, the poec yeah 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 because if you were paying attention right again we have this framing so i subscribe to blacklock's reporter which i think is like okay. the only media worth worth um subscribing to and paying money for you know blacklocks.ca i have no connection with them i don't know them but they're the best if you were following the coverage of that through them, you would know that every mainstream media talking point throughout the convoy had been proven false, right? There were no truckers setting fires to apartment buildings. There are no truckers defecating and urinating on the unknown soldier memorial. There was no, uh, the Ottawa police uh, did not beg Trudeau to invoke the Emergencies Act. Like none of that happened. That was all categorically false. Yet most of the Canadian public doesn't know any of this because of the way the media has framed it. Yeah, the Canadian publics are being cha- are being treated like the public in China who have no knowledge of Tiananmen Square, the Tiananmen Square massacre. It's exactly the same thing. It's really concerning. Um the the hearing itself was, uh, you know, I tried to put some faith in uh, the justice presiding over it and uh, very disappointed in what I saw. Uh, I saw, you know, a lot of people who had faith in or at least was holding on to a little bit of hope uh, in the judicial system just wither away. Yeah. Because what happened? We went in. <clears throat> And this is where I get smeared by the political class because they don't like that I won't po- I won't tow a political narrative. And I'm sorry, but I'm, you know, trust but verify. I like truth, even when truth sucks sometimes. And uh, we were going into it with two narratives. One was from the Liberal Party, which was it was Mad Max, pandemonium and chaos, die killings in the street, whatever. 
And then there was the conservative narrative, uh, which was that it was peaceful and it got out of hand, which is also false. It's the right. exact opposite. It was chaos the first weekend. We got it under control. We got it uh, organized. And then you had dance parties every night and barbecues and feeding the homeless, right? Because neither uh, anybody in the political class uh, could see the Freedom Convoy's grievances be validated. The Conservative Party in particular couldn't see a Facebook group of a half a million people who are upset with their own party, their own base, out fundraising any po political party in Canadian history. They couldn't allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's the best way to crush it? Well, during the convoy, you get a hold of it and you co-opt it to help end it prematurely. And then in the preliminary hearing, sorry, in the preliminary hearing, in the um, the POEC, uh, you ensure that one of your narratives dominates. But neither of them were true. And so there's some pain in the ass named Dictor who gets up there, who gets subpoenaed, which they weren't counting on, who told the truth that it was a beautiful moment in history. Like I've, I haven't gone to too many Grateful Dead concerts when I was younger, but I went to a few of them, went to a bunch of Fish concerts, Allman Brothers. Like that's what I grew up listening to. That sort of friendly vibe where everybody loves each other. Yeah, we're all different. We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some of us couldn't say socioeconomic backgrounds, but we all loved each other. A little too much drugs for my liking, but whatever. You do you, I do me sort of thing. And that's exactly what we had. And it's just amazing to see all these people in our society that look to historical moments like, I don't know, Woodstock, where people came together around loving one, one another and a, a spirit of positivity. They had it right in front of their faces. They had it right in front of Parliament Hill. And what did they do? They targeted it and smeared it. And they did everything they could to destroy it to the point where it may affect Canadian jurisprudence for generations in the future because of the outcome in the report. And then there's a political side, by the way, and that's another thing that a lot of people have missed. If you look at the recommendations from the POEC, uh, it is a direct target against CSIS. Now, we are all, I'm sure we're much more libertarian than most people, but given the type of corruption we see in our political class, we do at least need, if we're going to have an institution that investigates corruption uh, within politics, they need to be able to function. And the recommendations that were presented in the POEC uh, basically take CSIS and make it um, uh, completely you know, uh, ineffectual uh, when it comes to looking at foreign money that's entering the political sphere and causing a lot of damage to this country. So there's so many political pieces going on and that's just some of them. there's so much more to it that as being somebody who is on the stand and knowing a lot of the players having been involved politically in the past running as a candidate knowing most of our mps um it's a shame that we don't have an actual media that would dissect it there's one more you know i'll, I'll just mention this there's a an independent media source called diverge media mm-hmm and independent guy, uh, I think that's the future. It's not alternative media. It's going to be independent media, the the small guys. And he reached out to me, did an interview with me, did a whole bunch of background before our interview has done an interview with other people and realized that the entire narrative that he's been sold is a lie. And he's been delving deep into it over time, conducting interviews and all that sort of stuff. And he said to me, 
when last time he spoke a few days ago, he says, you know, what's really frustrating to me. What's really insulting is everything I've dis- I've discovered. You could discover in five minutes if you just looked at it. Right. Yeah. And he says, I look at legacy media like, you know, we have this uh, journalist, Glenn McGregor, the guy who was stalking me in front of my hotel room. All Glenn McGregor needed to do was look at point A, B, and C, listed them off. He's going to be doing something about it in the near future. And he would see right in front of his face that this is a lie, but he doesn't do it. Was he the CTV news guy? Yeah, he's the CTV guy. He reached out to me, too. Um, Oh, yeah. I'll make it quick. So I run a company. My main business, I run a a web hosting domain registrar company called EasyDNS. Been doing it since 98. We were the first registrar to take Bitcoin as a payment method since 2013. Awesome. Yeah, I've been orange pilling my customers ever since. <laughs> and um, and and I was against vaccine mandates. I, I'm vaccinated, but I'm against vaccine mandates, right? Yeah. Um, I haven't taken any boosters, though, and I won't. But uh, this, this happened. You did your thing. You took action. And we put out a post and we said, until they succeed, we are going to donate all Bitcoin payments to the trucker convoy. And that that's how I met Greg Foss, actually, through that. And and yeah, he's a good dude. I love him. What a shitstorm that caused. Right. So I've said things over the years. I've caused the occasional I'm known for being against cancel culture. I'm known for being opposed to deplatforming. I actually wrote a book about it. Um, So people, my customers aren't like usually they're not that surprised when I come out and say something like bombastic. You know, I mean, my blog is called bombthrower.com. This is bombthrower. It's just Mark being a bomb thrower. This was this was something else. So we had uh, didn't succeed, but we had people initiate a campaign to have us decertified as a CIRA registrar. Like they said, you know, you should wow. strip them of their certification. And um, we lost a lot of customers over it. We gained a few customers over it as well. When when the um, emergency act was invoked. We got a legal opinion and she was like, Mark, you could be captured by this. Like easy DNS could be captured by this, like within this regulatory uh, legislation, because you've, you've publicly said this. And it was like, Hmm. for a while, I just felt like, um, I felt like I was like persecuted. Like it was like, okay, we're on the run here. I don't know if my bank accounts are going to get seized. I don't know what's going to happen. We actually hadn't managed to, Easy was just pooling it in our one wallet and this, and then the emergency act happened before we had sent any over. So the lawyer said, don't send any over, just keep it where it is. So then we said, okay, Mm -hmm. look, we'll fund things like the Canadian Constitutional Foundation and the JCCF and we'll, we'll put our, we'll put the funds toward that until we, until we have some regulatory clarity, but man, Mm -hmm. it was crazy. It was, um, it was, it, and, and I actually remember I spiked a deal. I was about to invest in a company and I said, I can't do it because I don't know if my bank accounts are about to be seized. And if all mm. the world I have left is just my crypto, like that might be all I have left to like make payroll and fight this in court and do that. Wow. If, I, if I wake up tomorrow and my bank accounts are seized. So it was, it was quite harrowing, you know? 
Yeah, I can only imagine. You know, you have enough aggravation to deal with with running a business. Yeah, uh, I can only imagine. You know, add that layer. And I complained about my business where I just had a few employees and dealing with university students all day long. I didn't have to deal with my government breathing down my neck, right? In yeah. in a, a way that it's never done before. Um, but yeah, everything that you went on, uh, you went through times that times, I don't know, a thousand and every day. That's yeah. what was what my, it was, I don't know, it was a crazy time. Plus, we never actually had our accounts seized, but many Canadians did. And many people yeah, are still like, yeah. I, I see tweets and accounts from people who say, yeah, my account got frozen. It took this long to get unfrozen. I still can't get credit. I still can't get banked. I still can't do this. So, I mean, we got off easy. I will say that. But I mean, it, it really was in Canada, un, unprecedented. I never, never would have dreamt of such a thing happening in Canada. Well, let me ask you something. Having gone through that, do you regret it? Um. You know, it's funny. I was having um I I don't I was having lunch with the CEO of Sira about a year later and mm -hmm. I said uh I'm I'm keeping my mouth shut from now on because I just don't need the aggravation. And he said that's really sad. That's really he says everyone in the in Ottawa everyone in the office probably disagreed with you, but we need people like you out there like saying this. So what I have done, um, I have, I'm still vocal over on my personal blog, bombthrower.com, bombthrower TV. Here we are, you know, we're doing this interview. Um, I just, uh, I stopped writing the weekly newsletter over on Access of Easy, over on Easy. We have somebody else writing it now. I send ideas, mm -hmm. I write the occasional thing, but I said, let's just, I'm going to just be who I am over here. I have my own audience and I'm just going to run, you know, easy DNS. We're just going to run the business. And when there's something that that is topical, we came out under easy DNS. We commented and put out a piece about Bill C-26 and, yeah. um, you know, the cybersecurity bill. I sit on the board for the Internet uh, Society Canada chapter and we do a lot of policy work. So I'm still active. But I guess I sort of try to confine my my bombastic ranting to the bomb thrower channel, and I just sort of let Easy DNS go. And maybe that's that's me being gutless. Possibly, I don't know. I don't think it's being gutless, but I mean, it's uh, it's disappointing. I mean, this is the uh, the side effect is the self censorship, and mm -hmm. that's um, that's the worst form of censorship in my mind. And we've all been subjected to it you know myself as well we have yeah. uh we have this 450 million dollar class action suit yeah that i have to figure out a way to fundraise around it for myself and everybody else who doesn't have any representation because uh, the few people who have representation have taken uh have hoarded as many donations as possible kept it for themselves and abandoned the rest of us mm. so much for unity <laughs> and then it's yeah. oh let's unify <laughs> God. Is there uh, like a the problem? Fund? Is there like a crowdfund fundraiser for your defense on this, or is there one? Uh, I'm actually getting my uh, uh, my council to accept donations directly, so we don't deal with the crowdfunding issues. Yeah, true. Uh, so to go directly to his trust or escrow or whatever, and I've been spending the past six months of reaching out to people who don't have representation to put something together for us. So we don't, because what's going to happen is whoever doesn't have representation in the class action suit, everybody else is going to blame them. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't want anybody to be kind of left hanging, especially people who don't know what they've gotten involved in. There's a lot of people who don't understand, and I'm no lawyer, but I've grown up around lawyers. I, I understand, I'm a little bit comfortable in this space. I produce a podcast for lawyers. Mm-hmm. So I have a better than average understanding of the process, but still quite lacking. But some of these people know not even the slightest clue of how this all works. And, oh, I'm going to go and defend myself. Like, you're not going to do that yeah. <laughs> because that's it, it just that doesn't work. Um so I've been spending a lot of my time on that. But yeah, we have something set up with my uh, with my council. And it's just a matter of we haven't announced it yet because there's some other issues around it, which I should probably tell you off the record. Okay. Um, that will have some other effects on some other people, but that's another issue. All right. Well, after after the show or something. And but um when you want, we can put links to it in the show notes. If it's not ready yet, we can hold it back for now. But um Okay. We'll put that in. Okay. Um, you know, I've heard it said many times that the Freedom Convoy was the beginning. It was the beginning of the tide turning on COVID tyranny throughout the world. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it was very funny during, um, during the protest. I remember the, it started on the provincial level. And for those of you, your, your, uh, listeners and viewers who are in the United States, that's our equivalent of states. And the premier is the equivalent of our governors. So we saw the premiers. You have to know how politics works. They'll test messaging. That's why sometimes you see politicians say one thing one day and the complete opposite the next day and then revert back. They're testing messaging. And I saw them testing messaging into the first week, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, um, from a number of premiers, including the Ontario premier, uh, who was just as bad as Trudeau just as bad so it's this not a left and right thing this is they're all bad yeah because he was from the conservative party and trudeau is liberal just to spell it out for the the americans that's right so the premier of ontario is conservative uh he sought an injunction on the gifts and go money trudeau went after our bank accounts uh they're both culpable they're both working together so we can get beyond this fantasy that there's two different parties it's the uni party i'm sorry people get upset with me when i say that but True sucks sucks sometimes, right? Yeah. And uh, so we saw them testing messaging. And I remember saying to some people, some of the other uh, road captains, uh, people in the, organizing it, saying, this is good. They're testing messaging. That means they have data showing that there's overwhelming support for us. They don't know what to do. Uh, just wait. Let's wait it out a couple of days. And then lo and behold, we started to see provinces. Uh, it's, uh, what's his name? Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, I believe, mm-hmm. did the same. Yeah. They started testing messaging and saying, oh, well, maybe we're going to roll back. Maybe it's it's time to end uh, the pandemic and restrictions. And I was, you know, laughing, hashtag nothing to do with truckers, right? Yeah. Because they'll never admit it. But that's yeah. that's all it did. And it, you know, I found out from um, a number of people, there was 30 plus convoys around the world that people realize in various jurisdictions that this tactic was working. And this also had the same ripple effect in jurisdictions outside of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think it did. The only one that held on uh, were, you know, the Trudeau administration. And as I explained, because uh, extremists only know one worldview and they'll always double down on their strategy. They'll yeah. never sit back and think, what's the other guy thinking, right? And, and they no did the same thing. Until, there's no... There's zero, zero introspection. We, can we possibly zero be wrong ego. on this? Yeah. That's right. 
And they eventually, uh, how many months later was it? Eight months later, they eventually removed the restrictions within Canada and the mandates. And once again, hashtag nothing to do with truckers. Just because just you think you can hang on for additional six months, you think we don't know it, it was the, it was the convoy? We know it did. And what, what the reason, you know, I've been very vocal in my criticism of all aspects of the political class, the people who got involved and co-opted the convoy. Like, it's very convoluted and, and confusing. Diverge Media is doing a lot of work on this and we'll be releasing some of it. But part of the reason I was so frustrated and so uh, angry about it is because look what happened in the Netherlands. Um, Jordan Peterson explained to me on, uh, on one of our calls, he said, the people in the Netherlands who I eventually connected with, they looked at what happened in the convoy. They tr they tried to look at the weaknesses that were exposed by the government, and they tried to hedge against that. They had regular protests. They would break it up. They'd start again. You know, they always kept the government guessing. And what was the eventual result of that? The fact that they protected against all the things that we dealt with? They actually formed a party, mm -hmm. and they got 20% of the vote, and now they have the political... Uh, capital and the votes in their parliament to block any of this nonsense, whether it's WEF or neo-progressive, whatever you want to call it, to to block any of these restrictions on farmers because they have 20% of the parliament. So they won, right? Yeah. That's what we were robbed of. We were robbed of building an equivalent grassroots movement that wasn't tied to any political party that we could have maneuvered and found uh, candidates, politicians, groups of people, advocacy groups to align with to have that sort of effect on Canadian politics. We were robbed of that. And uh, that I will never forgive them for. You know, um, that goes this, brings us back to Martin Gurry's book, who said that was the fatal flaw in a lot of these populist movements was that they didn't have a coherent strategy for what to do with the momentum and the inertia and the victories that they achieved. Like they could overthrow a government, but then, you know, just someone worse would take its place. And so there was no, there was no uh, coherent uh, methodology to sort of channel it all into. And what you were describing about the, the, the Dutch and Netherlands, they, they, they transcended that they figured it out and they did it. All I'll say, though, is it's early days here in Canada. I mean, maybe that particular chapter went the way it did, but you guys did something immutable, something um, transformative, really. You set off the whole movement, and that, that set the entire thing in motion. So that's I wouldn't sell yourself short there because it all started in Canada with you guys. Yeah, and I think we're right now at the stage where people are, you know, independent journalists, YouTubers are now talking to myself and other people, understanding the nuance of what went on, what went on behind the scenes, and they're now understanding that there's two convoys. There was that what I call political convoy and freedom convoy, and freedom convoy was much larger. Political convoy was a small group of people trying to co-opt us for the political class which is going to happen everywhere whatever so we're going to have some rough waters for the little for a little while as we kind of purge out political convoy and political convoy can go back to their parties and the rest of us can refocus 
on unifying and building something with people we don't necessarily agree with everything, but we agree on respect and unity and tolerating each other. And this is what I love about the Bitcoin community. I got to be, and I hate the word community, but it's so awesome. And it's so many people in politics don't have this advantage. The, you know, the people, the diehard polit political people to go into a space where there's a whole bunch of people have a whole bunch of different views on the world and how the world should operate. But they agree on one thing, which is freedom, sovereignty of money, um, decentralization. And it's become this, this undercurrent that allows us all to talk to each other. And I've only ever experienced that in Bitcoin. So that's those those are the the, the societal benefits and political benefits, if you will, of Bitcoin on top of the monetary value that it has. And I, I'm trying my best to make more and more people realize that and see that. And some of them have. I think it's uh, I think you've done, uh, you know, a monumental amount of work in that regard. And uh, I know you took a few hits to the body to to do it. And so the rest of and us my ankle. Yeah. Yeah, that too. <laughs> and the rest of us are in your debt for that. So we thank you for it. So um, you've been great with your time. Why don't you give us a rundown of how to follow your stuff, contribute where we can buy the book and uh, keep in touch with what you're doing. Okay. So the, Easiest way I've uh, set a domain with my name, which is so embarrassing. Never something I never thought I would do, but it is what it is. So if you go to benjaminjdictor.com, that'll send you to the link tree that has all my stuff, my Substack. I just released a Substack today on Tarek Fatah. Um, the where to buy the book, the various places where you can get it, all my social media. I've started doing, you know, live streams with uh, some of my followers, slowly building it up over time, because again, this issue hasn't died down and I want to try to orange pill as many people as possible are still concerned. So just go to benjaminjdictor.com. You'll see all the links there and that will always be updated with new stuff. Uh, in terms of um, contributions, I'll get back to you and I'll let you know when we figure out. Right now, it's just going to my counsel, Jim Carajalios, mm -hmm. and we'll set something up but uh, he can take donations also, by the way, in Bitcoin, because I made him a Bitcoiner a couple of years ago cool. and still new, doesn't really know it. He's like, uh, he understands in principle why it's important. Yeah. Uh, he holds a little bit. And uh, I said, here's your opportunity uh, to, so actually uh, Caribou is trying to help him uh, on board to accept um uh, Bitcoin donations. I don't know if he's going to set up a BitPay or something like that, mm -hmm. but he's going to walk him through it. So again, we're all coming together to, to help each other, which was the spirit of the Freedom Convoy. Great. Okay. Are you going to Miami next month? I am going to be in Miami. I'm looking right. very forward to it. So I wasn't going to go. And then uh, Breed Love's like, ah, you got to come. Come hang out. I'm like, all right, I'll, all right. I'll come. So Well, I'm going to see you there. So I'm going to. So awesome. It'll be great to meet you in person. And thanks for coming on today. My pleasure, anytime.